the local film industry has been left somewhere on the wayside. And even the people who go watch these things, I'm not so sure that they appreciate them very much. God it, Philippines! For sake, people, seriously, this is like important stuff. This is part of a cultural heritage. What you're doing to it is heresy. The situation can be saved, but the drastic measures has to be taken. Philippine film director Mario O'Hara once wrote in an essay about the history of the Filipino cinema that there are currently two kinds of Filipino films. The first kind of film often dominates the box office. He said, these films are consequently sent to festivals abroad to try for awards and represent the Philippines. The other kind of films are actually worth watching. And that's the kind of film we're going to discuss tonight, it seems. A fisherman versus a devil who looks like a pig. Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Karri. My co-host is Henrik. We're from Finland. I'm a media assistant. Henrik is an up-and-coming master of arts. What's up? Well, in, in Finland it's a typical horror story. We are finally actually reaching winter after we have now landed on fall, which is surprisingly a lot like our summer was. But since you, since you started, started with a quote from, from a Filipino director, I actually quote to you our, another Filipino director, Eric Matti, mm. who has, has stated that the Filipino film scene is in state of crisis. He doesn't know how to fix it, but he demands, or rather begs, that the government would step in and somehow fix and unfuck the situation. And I might throw something into that argument and say that I'm not sure if if the local population are really into something else than what they're getting right now. I know those people are out there as well who do crave for something else than Kathniel, Catherine Bernard, Bernardo and Daniel Padilla or romantic comedies. They are there, but I think most of the population go see romantic comedies. They, according to what I've heard, can't really put it on a piece of paper and on a scientific uh, research paper or anything, but it seems that from my anecdotal point of view, if there's no romantic aspect to a movie, then they kind of give a hard pass on it. Or then there's the second group of people who gravitate towards Marvel and, and go to our workplace dressed in all kinds of Marvel stuff so yeah I, i've heard a similar type of rumor that there are like three major genres in filipino cinema that still drives and drives the audiences to the theaters and those would be like you stated um romantic films drama and and comedy movies and you know that's that's that the whole rest of the, the cinematic ballet that actually draws in the the film going parlance would be the hollywood productions with, with Marvels and John Wicks and the likes, which would actually mean that, to get back to your, to your director, there would now be the third type of cinema, 
or the third, third, third type of Filipino cinema. Like he stated that there are those that get get sent to the award shows and galas and gets to compete on on best foreign this and that award and then there are the films that are worth seeing. And now we have the third category, the films that do not get sent to to best foreign anything and still ain't worth seeing. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, probably a kind of stab at Kathniel type of films. Uh, basically, I watched a whole bunch of Filipino comedy trailers. <laughs> One of them, I, I kid you not, was some type of a crime, crime gangster cop thing where the, the whole comedy thing was that there was a main lady female who had a really major, like, like I'm talking like a size of a ho- small house type of a orange afro. <laughs> I'm just looking at it. I'm like, who's laughing at this? But I, I guess that that counts as comedy, and that drives the ticket sales at the moment. Didn't check how how much it actually did in total in box office, because that would have actually meant that I would have used used the description of the movie to Google the movie's name to find that info and that would have just you know just qualified me giving enough shit to actually do that amount of work so hard pass on that but I I did check it enough like like or, or the collage that I checked out was supposed to be modern Filipino comedy movies that actually succeeded the level of success being being the question mark here but succeeded in box office yeah, I would even argue that in the Philippines, I'm not sure if this is a very uh, cinephile-ish country. I'm not sure if there's a big cinephile culture here. And I, I'm not uh, firing any shots here or anything, but I, my observation and the things that I've heard, very anecdotal, I know. But the level of education in this country might also have something to do with the tastes in the cinema. Because I think the watching here is more casual, and it doesn't help that almost all of the cinemas here, there's very few really like independent small theaters here, in Manila even. Most of the theaters are are huge chain theaters that exist only integrated into the shopping malls, the big shopping malls. And all those have to offer is... Perhaps not surprisingly, perhaps because that's what the people want. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, though, they only have the big blockbuster mega hits from from across the pond, so to say, from the Americas. I I actually like I can I can meet your argument halfway. Certainly, yeah, you putting the big big cinema, uh, your, your big theaters, the th- theaters that actually come with all the goodies and have, have the state of art image and sound and all of that, you put them in the in the big shopping malls. Yeah, I can see that psychologically and subconsciously that actually starts to drive the audience behavior. Mm. It's it's something that I'm also dreading that might someday happen in Finland, seeing how our, our only, only IMAX screen which even isn't a legit IMAX it's IMAX Coca-Cola Zero version but the only one that we have in Finland is in major uh, shopping mall and also that might mean that since you put 
put the big screens, you put your IMAXs in, in shopping malls, I can actually see that, yeah, the, the second effect from that would be that you would then bombard that screen with Marvel and, and Hollywood and basically everything that would have the high-tech special, special effects so that you can actually say that you put your, put your big-ass screen to a good use. But I, I don't see that that's like either do or don't type of situation. I actually can see that even even if the, the movie theaters would be in big shopping malls and big mega complexes, there still could be an appreciation towards, you know, homegrown, domestic, intelligent, quality, drama, thrillers. Basically, I, I, I do think that even though the, the landscape surrounding the movie complexes are driving them more towards the Hollywood popcorn-esque film material, it, it still could could be used to house and but the, the movie going audiences could still find a way to appreciate the more intelligent cinema but it's a uh, to me it's a more of a question of a kind of a cinema literature and and kind of a cinematic ed- education and i i don't mean that you have to go to film school no but there are, there has to be some type of push coming from the government and coming from the cultural sphere that drives your your domestic well-made like hardcore dramas and like well-made intelligent movies forward and and to the front and and drives the the information that these types of films are done and also the information why it's great that these types of films are done to the to the paying audiences, and I, I do think that if like if if the scene of Filipino cinema at the moment is as dire as as my background research uh, would be suggesting it is, I do think that there's an educational pro- uh, process. There's also funding process that has to be reshaped and refigured out. But I actually. Like, I, I'm not willing to give up on on movie ticket buying Filipino audiences and and st- saying that they, they will just you know levitate towards towards Hollywood and Marvel unless you take the cinema com- uh, the the movie theaters out of out of shopping malls and mega complexes. Yeah, for sure, you're in the right direction there. I think it's a combination of things. It's the expedient culture that we now enjoy, the Facebook-centric lifestyle of people, well, people working a lot of long hours here, and, uh, you know, people are working generally here on Saturdays as well, so that leaves you one, only one day when you're really, when you're really allowed to relax, so that might affect your choices, you're not looking for that artistic film around some back alley, yeah, you, you are you are going to the you know mall to take your pictures with the with the different stores. That's kind of a thing here. You go to the store to take pictures of yourself in front of the stores and all the fancy items for some reason. And then at the same time, you know, you might go see the latest Marvel flick. So a bit of a context here. 
yeah, if you if the listener didn't know, probably didn't. I live in Manila currently, so it goes kind of nicely with today's topic. And what I said there previously, I'm not saying that there's not a movie cult- culture here in the sense of the industry, at least. There's been quite a few films that have been sent to international film festivals have and have gotten rave reviews. And this is definitely one of them in some circles considered the best or one of the best films to come out of the Philippines. And yeah, that's Man- Manila in the Close of Light from 1975. Manila Samanga Kukonang And I do know that I sound like a goddamn robot when I'm pronouncing Tagalog, but there you go. Directed by Lino Broca. This is based on the story In the Close of Brightness by Edgardo M. Reyes. I tried to find the novel, tried to find it also in English, tried to find it in any language whatsoever, but was not able to find it anywhere. Considered also a worthy read, this is the only Filipino film to enter the list of 1001 movies you must see before you die. And uh, the 2015 restoration of this film was kind of really kickstarted by Martin Scorsese, who founded the World Cinema Foundation a while back and who also initiated the Inshang restoration, another Lino Broca film. Yeah, 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 and, and yeah, yeah, all kinds of products. So, yeah, for a little bit of background, there was a certain someone, Clodoaldo del Mundo Jr., he wrote an adaptation of the Edgardo Reyes novel during his film writing studies, and then later producer Mike de Leon contacted this del Mundo, asking him to create a, like a polished screenplay from that adaptation. And then Leo, De Leon approached Lino Broca to direct, as uh, he was kind of riding high at the moment. He had received critical acclaim for Tinimbanga uh, Nunitkulan, wait, but found wanting. And it was only then that the pieces for Claws, Claws of Light, started to fall into place because Braca, he wanted to tie the story into a commentary about uh, the urban poverty under uh, Marcos's rule in the country. And then he also went and added some homosexual themes and some commercially friendly elements. A director who has been criticized for some films, kind of a split opinions out there, at least back in the day, Nowadays, definitely seen as one of the greats of the country in filmmaking. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was criticized for Bona from 1980. It uses the well-known movie stars to make a film that, according to the director, attacked the star system. Interesting. Then there was Controversial from the same same year, which was supposed to condemn pornography, but it's uh, then it was actually deemed a pornographic film. Of course, we've discussed these kind of films before in this podcast. Uh, Cuties comes to mind in this sense, not in the sense of pornography, but depicting kindness something to denounce something. So, well, I, have, I haven't seen this movie in question, Controversial, so no more about that. And then, then there was Angela Marcado, Angela Marcado, uh, supposedly a rape-related movie. 
supposed to condemn rape. And so, so you can see where all the naysayers or the controversies coming from. Yeah, that's also something that kind of binds to this day's movie. And because Manila, well, I didn't find that Manila was actually being really called out for, for doing this. But the same type of argument was was presented by Broca when he was talking about the, the depiction of the Chinese people in Manila in the, in the Close of Light, where he has, he has stated that he did not try to, to depict Chinese as a, as a group in any type of a negative or critical light. He's simply just looking at one Chinese character in his movie. And, and the story well, the story that relates to that character. And I have to say that I'm kind of actually calling bullshit on, on that argument. Well, if the director wants to depict this kind of story about class struggles, or I think it could have been a Chinese person, it could have been perhaps an American person, somebody from a wealthy background misusing the, the people of the Philippines. Yeah, it, it could have. It could have been a bloody alien. All I care. All, all I'm saying is that, you know, he's when, when he chooses who he uses as a proxy to depict the, the economic bad guys in his movie, he is kind of automatically, especially since he uses one character as a kind of a foil to, to all similar type of characters or all, all the members of the same ethnicity, which he kind of does here in, in a throwaway line when he's like, he shows you one Chinese man, all good and well, and then in dialogue he brings the Chinese in plural. So the one Chinese man is, he's at the same time, he is, yeah, 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 he's just one Chinese character, but he is also kind of a proxy to... Chinese in plural, and if you do that, like you can, you can do that. I'm not criticizing his, his decision to do it. By all means, you know, as a director, tell the story you want. But if you do that, in that sense, you are actually proposing a form of criticism. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of a like, if you then try to say that, yeah, I, I, whatever the thing I did, I didn't mean it as a form of criticism. I was just, you know trying to tell this one individual story here, I'm kind of like, either you are trying to bullshit me, or then you actually didn't realize what you were doing. Okay, that, that's interesting. I kind of took it in a way that we have a kind of simple every man, every man in this film, and they certainly might hold some prejudices when it comes to foreigners and of, of course, the, the class struggle here, here is clear. There's ext- extremely wealthy Chinese people, on the other hand, and that did piss off the locals. In There there were some conflicts there, I'm just saying. But uh, who, who was the character who used the term Chinese? Oh, it's the construction workers who go around about... The rich, who here are being shown to be only as the Chinese, because no other eth- rich ethnicity exists in this film, needing the fence of territories and the fe- 
basically the construction sites considering the, concerning the walls being the ones that actually pay the best money. Mm, okay. I'm just still gonna go with just simple allegory towards class struggle. It uh, it can be a simple allegory towards class struggle, yeah, but in in your film you present an ethnicity and that's the only ethnicity that you 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 present in relation to your allegory of a class struggle. Mm. It's it's basically like like take it this way. You've you've seen the the foreign films. We we have watched this where, where the coming to point is the rich American. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same case. The rich American is used as a proxy for Americans and American economic expansionism. It's basically the the, the same same arguments and the same methods that are here just you know used to are used here, they are just framed around a Chinese man. Yeah. Then again, the film, at the end of the film, it it definitely shows the, the Filipinos who are against what just took place, and uh, a murder of a Chinese person, and they come and try to mob him. Yeah, which is even even more dire statement about the situation. And through a situation, perhaps about the Chinese influence in in Philippines, because in in what, what we see in in the final moments, like once again, the main character's actions, even though criminal, they are understandable, and we we can argue until tomorrow are they justifiable? Perhaps they even are. Most definitely there was a motive. And the Chinese man presented here most definitely is a bad guy. So in my point of view, you know, good riddance, you know, riddance to him. Shank him all you want. But uh, resulting from the shanking, what happens is basically psychotic crazed mob violence. Which ends with 90% certainty to the death of our main character. character. And that's Kind of once again tying into well, it does tie into the theme of class tr- struggle. But we, since the class struggle is tied in with with the Chinese, it also kind of ties in with them. It's it's a situation where where the monetary power that the Chinese are holding in Manila, it it, it surfaces as a need to see the Chinese as some how better, more deserving people. They are the economic saviors of the poor Filipinos, and through that act they are kinda... that they are justified in their actions, whatever their their actions might be. And therefore, the mob in the end goes into immediate kill frenzy after someone dares to attack one of these economically holy Chinese people. And then, interestingly, also allowing films like Manila in the Close of Light to be published during the kind of early years of the uh, of the martial law. Yeah, but then again, usually, usually, once again, it's it's kind of interesting that the film was allowed to come out. Then again, it's not altogether that surprising. 
Yeah, yeah, but uh, what what did happen here was that the the freedom of artistic expression was still there to quite an extent when you look at the film and and some other films also from the same director, which went even more aggressive with these almost kind of in-your-face statements. Yeah, during this time, though, the Filipino film industry was quite vibrant and there was room for this expression for some reason. And the, the Philippines had and do still have to an extent the kind of a significant film industry. Could be also that because of this film garnered quite a bit of international recognition and perhaps this also played a role in how this film was allowed to pass the censors so easily during Marcos's rule, unlike the film that came up the next year, 1976, which was Inshang. I think Claus didn't receive any public negative reactions directly from the president couple, as far as I know, but but uh, Inshang did. But yeah, still both films were released during the Marcos times and during the martial law period, and it just may have been that um, relative creative freedom, such as this film here, those may have paved the way for the people power revolution, which finally then led to the ousting of Marcus in 1986. Yeah, could be. Then again, what I've kind of seen through the, throughout the years, also when doing this podcast, is that usually the... <sighs> The, the totalitarian and at times even dicta, dictatorial-ship-like governments, they usually are giving surprisingly a lot of leeway to, to artistic depiction, uh, depictions. It's the, the same thing, like, like we, uh, episodes way past, we talked about Welcome uh, or No Trespassing. Mm. Uh, which came out dur- during the, the, the heydays of... of Soviet Union. At least I kind of concluded that that was simply the naivety, the stupidity of the sensor boards. Oh, well, I, I just concluded that it was just the sensor boards not really giving a fuck. Could be. Seeing, seeing how, once again, you know, the time period... Like, I, I know that Welcome does does have the legacy as, as this, this masterpiece movie that... Through the, the ingenious trickery of its director, it managed to slip past the censors, and it got into theaters before the censors realized that what the hell is going on. And back then, and you know, at that point, it was too too late to actually react into the situation. That that is the that usually enjoyed version of how it went, but I'm really. I was I was hesitant with that story already back in the episode that we did, and I'm still hesitant. I still do believe that, for example, Welcome was knowingly let into theaters, and it was part of of the press troika that was going in in Soviet Russia d- during the 60s. Allowing the film to be released was still uh, was still in keeping with the political will of of the government, and I kind of can see that with Manila also that may have been the situation. Even though, yeah, Manila too is a film that is is highly critical of the then stated governmental rule and the governmental hierarchy, and the effect that that rule and hierarchy has on Philippines as a nation. 
we haven't really given any description of the film yet. But we are kind of assuming that the listeners here already have seen the film. But if not, yeah, this is about a young fisherman from a village, from an from an island, and he moves to Manila, the capital of the Philippines, on a quest to track quest to track down his girlfriend. And she was lured out of home with the promise of work, and she has disappeared and has not been heard really since. And just to make ends meet in Manila while trying to find his girlfriend, he takes low-wage jobs at a construction site, then witnesses the life on the streets, and uh, witnesses prostitution, corruption, and uh, gets kind of dragged down into kind of a violent violent behavior day by day yeah it, it's kind of like uh, it, it's a mixture it, it's mostly drama but it does have kind of a film noir crime film elements in it you you have the missing lady who the the main character the hero must seek out and in in course of his journey he comes into a foreign territory in, in here, it's, it's Manila seeing how he is originating from a small, some small village. And in that new territory that he has to traverse through, he comes repeatedly face to face with the, with the less virtuous elements. Corruption, crime, prostitution, human trafficking, all the, all the whole smorgasbord of, of basically economic human misery yeah giving the audience kind of a really good access to understand why people might be leading such a life that they might now lead how how one thing or the other might lead to violence and how you why you might take some kind of menial jobs why you might take some questionable jobs you know socio sociopolitically or, or otherwise yeah, when when the film starts, he basically is as at is at the as a point where he is a wage slave. At at that point, he works in a in a construction site for pennies, and even those pennies are slowly being stolen from him. Whenever the the foreman decides that, oh yeah, we are not going to pay pay you the full day, full wages yeah. this week. We are willing to loan you your own paycheck and keep ten percent interest, or you know, ex- extending this privilege to you, as they kind of point it, put it. You're absolutely right. The film says that that the wage is two point five pesos at the construction site. So breaking down this thing, Julio's construction work pay from what I was able to find out and this this data was kind of confirmed as as far as my partner is aware should be quite accurate so 2.5 bhp or filipino pesos per day equals 62.5 filipino pesos per month which is 16 usd us dollars per month at least at the time it's not that much even today. It should be the double the amount today, about 31 US dollars in 2023. 
So as the quote in the movie goes, with money, living here is bliss. And to be honest, it has improved over time, but even now, today, ordinary Filipinos earn anywhere between 170 to 350 US dollars, dollars per month, so it's not much. Yeah. Uh, keep continuing from that point, otherwise, since you are basically this po- uh, podcast experts on expert on all things things Manila. Otherwise, outside of the the payment situation or the pay situation, how well does the film compare to modern day Manila? Well, construction-wise, how Manila looks like today, it certainly looks more modern. I think the the, the class struggles or differences in income are even more conspicuous. There are the rich neighborhoods, clearly, like the previously army base area where I currently work in, very lavish houses and uh, private um, properties, extremely expensive prices in a sense that the prices are something comparable to Finland even, in, in the grocery stores in that fancy Venice area. Uh, and yeah, you might travel for a few minutes out of the, that region and then you see the poverty again. You. You see the shanty houses, you see people by the side of the road just kind of kneeling down and putting things into a basket, maybe cleaning some vegetables, like I think in the film. And uh, I'm not sure if things have changed that much. People earn more, but the poverty is very in your face in the street view. I live in the... Uh, in the area that is kind of closed off, so to speak. There is uh, armed guards at all times. That's keeping a lookout that poor people stay out out of the area, if at all possible. The people that do not belong, do not live here. So I have just kind of my own little safe space here. And once I get out of that safe space, I again see those shanty buildings. I see how the normal ordinary filipinos live here and it 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 hurts every day looking at it okay Does it, i don't know if that answered your question but anyway it kind of is like i i was chasing do find morphine addicted prostitutes from <laughs> I, every street corner that you can push down the stairs but that's actually a way better answer because it, it it leads into into a second question which is like your time in manila has the has it somehow changed your perception of yourself wow that's a big question perception of myself i guess i mean i've seen poverty i've seen people in tough situations and of all all over the globe mostly i have touching point from europe and some of the north africa regions so it just makes you think that if there's something more that i could do as an individual it definitely i do pay more for services here than the 
the average Filipino, let's say, there's this so-called tricycle, kind of a small, it, it's basically a motorcycle, and it has this connected compartment where a traveler can sit one or two or three or four people, depending on the size. And that is really low-cost traveling here. For me, that's something like a five, ten minute ride might cost you, let's see, one euro. But I usually almost always pay like two euros at, at least. Because I know, you know, gasoline prices are what they are and they are going up and I have even no idea how these people can survive with one euro uh, as a payment yeah. for such a trip. So you pay pay like free willingly some extra so that, so that the, the driver can adjust to the inflation and the gasoline prices. Yeah, um, I mean because because I can I I do that. That there are also some street kids that I see kind of the same faces every now and then, and it's it's kind of cute. It's so sympathetic. There are these kids who are sometimes by the big road that is just outside my neighborhood and they try to block the traffic for me so that I can cross the road easier and faster and more convenient and then they ask for money. I think that's that's adorable and in some sense perhaps sad. I I do give them money every chance I can kind of give it. Yeah. I think it's kind of my... I feel that it's kind of my responsibility as, as well as the rich pig here. Not a Chinese pig, but some sort of a foreign pig. I uh, I should do my part. So that's how I guess it has, I don't know, changed me. But that's that's how I react to this environment. Okay. Speaking of Julio, he kind of resists as long as he can until it's until it's kind of too late. He resists the aggression. One thing that might have worked well also in the context of the film would have been the approach of the Korean movie Burning, to use it as an example, which we discussed in episode 147, if you want to go back to that, dear listener. Um, in that film, we couldn't verify any wrongdoing, Henrik. The, there were just these mere conclusions that the lead character had without any hard evidence, but he took action anyway. And since kind of the rest of the events in the in clause is already based on some kind of a verified suffering, and the kind of source of that suffering can be quantified in the movie, so maybe it's best that we don't do the burning approach at the end of the film or during the entire running time of the of the film, the clause. That would kind of make sense in following that kind of until the end. But I have to say that there's a fair bit of paranoia in this film. There's misunderstandings and jumping into conclusions in clause, and it takes fair bit of bit of amount before we get any verified information that the lady friend is where uh, Julio thinks she is. I mean, the hero believes that Ligaya is in location X, but then, as a viewer, I was expecting her to be maybe somewhere else possibly killed i was thinking that this might be like a fruitless chase for him and that we'll never even meet ligaya that's what i was expecting but then ligaya appears and but she does serve as like a MacGuffin either way to keep this guy running around aimlessly or not and uh, from one misfortune 
do the next. Yeah, the film kind of needs a Ligaya, uh, not necessarily Ligaya herself, but the film does need a MacGuffin, which in this case ends up being Ligaya to to give some type of a light for uh, for the main character to chase. Because uh, the main character needs a reason to stay in Manila once once he loses his construction site job and his life just kind of gets worse and worse as it goes on. See, since following following being kicked out of the construction site, Julio he comes even even more entangled with the criminal and the abusive elements in in Manila. He himself becomes. A short-time male prostitute, and in, mm-hmm. in order to actually reach that low, like at that point, I most likely would have just hightailed out of out of Manila. Julio most likely would have done the exact same thing, unless there would have been some type of a MacGuffin. In this film's case, Ligaya for for him to chase. Yeah, do you, do you think the film? Could have been stronger even if there if we couldn't have any verified uh, accounts on the, the whereabouts of Ligaya. It perhaps would have been uh, Ligaya. I, I I'm kind of two minds about it. Ligaya gives her own heartbreaking perspective, and it it uh, she helps. Ligaya helps to open up what is the other side of. The Manilan prostitution, because from Julio's perspective, it's 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 demeaning. Uh, to Julio, it's somewhat disgusting. Most definitely, it's, it's questionable. But it's not like the the bottom of the barrel, worst of the worst. It's still based on well, well, it's not consensual because the the, the monetary yeah. Upper hand is hold over Julio. He has to do what he has to do in order to get money in order to survive. But that's basically where where the control and where the direct abuse ends. It ends in monetary control. But in Ligaya, Ligaya presents the situation where that control becomes physical and impossible to break. In form of of morphine addiction, which is basically the fate of every prostitute except Ligaya, because Ligaya just happens to please the one Chinese man who takes her under her economic wing, uh, wing and through his money he's willing to to protect Ligaya from being forced to become addicted to morphine. So in in that sense, yeah. Uh, having Ligaya present in the story, it helps to to open a new venue. It it helps to showcase that the situation, Julio's situation, could be even even more darker. Or oh, the prostitution for women in Manila, it's more heinous than the prostitution that Julio was forced on. But and mm. and Ligaya does help the movie to. To kind of a slide into its ending, it it gives Julio the, the the final clear motivation to to kill the Chinese man, which leads into to the lynching, which leads into end credit. So 
and narratively and structurally Gaia does work well in Manila. Uh, could it the film still have been stronger, perhaps be without Ligaya? Maybe so, to be absolutely honest. Because Ligaya, like you pointed out, she does provide some clarity and some clear answers and some clear truths into the situation, which up until that point has been just Julio, Julio's theories and, and in his mind. Mm. And even though Ligaya doesn't completely wash the paranoia away, there is still looming questions in the background, like for example, who burned down the, the poor people's ghetto shantytown? Was it the construction site workers who wanted to drive that one, one dead worker's wife and father out, out of the shantytown and, and stop their questions, perhaps, perhaps not, we do not know. So part of the paranoia certainly is there, but the paranoia could have been more stronger if we would have no answers at all. Yeah, interesting that you brought up the kind of shantytown burn. Uh, how I saw that scene was that it could have been simply government land grabbing, so to speak, mm -hmm. because yeah, people have been living on some land for generations in the Philippines, and, and then nowadays you need a proof of land ownerships, and if you can't provide such document, which was never provided to you if you lived there for centuries as a, as a family from generation to generation, you can't provide such a document, maybe you don't have a money to create such a document, maybe you are not allowed to, I'm not sure of those specific circumstances involving that, but so they lose their houses and what's even worse than sometimes government burns down these makeshift villages in case these occupants refuse to relocate. And that's, that's what I think happened here. Uh, that's also a strong possibility. I was thinking about that also. Seeing how, how the film calls in a, in a previous scene, the movie directly calls upon the question of who has the ownership over land. Yeah. And is, is the, is, does this kind of ancestral privilege to land to exist? Very, very much that, that the shantytown is a discussion and debate over uh, ancestral privilege to land versus modernization and the building projects that modernization brings with it. Which one is more important? Mm. The, the fact that the people who have roots and who have lived on that land perhaps for centuries can still exist on that land or the new high-rise that the new construction site is going to build. So uh, from that point on, yeah, it, it most definitely, it, it could be just a government for burning burning the, the shantytown down in order to force the people to evacuate, in order to allow itself to just grab the land and then sell that land to some construction site operators. But I was still also considering the possibility that it might be the construction company who was facing a possibility of a legal action from that one worker's wife. Mm. Rolling back a little bit, we were talking about, you were talking about narrative strength. And I just wanted to throw you this to this question. I will try to formulate my 
own response as well to the narrative strength. So basically the, the film works in, in a way that we go from tribulation to tribulation with what somebody might argue not much narrative going through all those tribulations. Did, did you think that there was enough narrative to kind of keep you going, keep you interested in the in the MacGuffin, or you thought it was kind of uh, hanging there a little bit when we go from challenge to the next challenge. I, I on my on my part, I thought that the kind of flashbacks of Ligaya and the struggles they they worked just enough, and it worked for me to to keep my attention going. I was hanging at times. Okay. Um, in, in Manila there are two sides of the film. There is the mystery story, where is Ligaya and what has happened to her, and then there is basically the, the larger discussion about capitalism and, and monetary con- economic control over people. And I do think, I, I was more engaged with the, the capitalism discussion than the mystery plot itself, which at mm. times I actually felt has been told better in, in other movies. Like the, the main, main driving element of the plot, the, the mystery of Ligaya, like mentioned, that is very much like a detective story story blueprint mm. and I do feel that some detective stories quite many of them actually have told the, the what happened to the lady storyline better with more twists with more backstabbings and more characters and more questions than, than what Manila did what Manila brings to the case which is oftentimes lacking in, in pure detective fiction not all of them but, but quite many of uh, many of them is is the level of paranoia, and I, I think that's one of the elements. It's not directly a plot point, but it's it's a kind of a plot related feature and element which uh, in Manila works very well. In the episode for the original Suspiria, we were discussing whether it is giallo or not giallo. Well, there was somebody that was giving a review of, of Claus, and he was suggesting that there were some elements from Giallo. So as the de facto Giallo expert of this podcast, did you find Giallo here? I almost would have to actually see uh, hear, the, hear the reasonings and the argument of, of the person making this claim. There were none. Just that there is some giallo influences of the time coming from the time. I can see some influences in in camera work. Well, if you take uh, if you take that to mean that you could draw giallo influences if there's a camera zoom in when somebody dies, uh-huh. and there's uh... some moog. Or Moog uh, synthesizer in the background. Okay. Uh, there, there, there is also some. I, I, I can, I can see that it shares a spirit of of mystery and paranoia. 
which usually is is in the thematic background of of giallos, as those are also mystery stories. And well, it doesn't really have the violence, but it has the the idea of the underlying seediness that goes goes under the the scene current of the society like the idea that there is is the scene version of society which is nice tidy controlled and everybody is polite and underneath that there would be an unseen reality which would be violent cruel and abusive i uh, that element um uh, manila never actually shows you the tidy clean scene side of of society but it is kind of brought up in in dialogue that there are mentions that manila is clean tidy and it can be living there can be a place we just never actually see it because we are con- uh, constantly uh, being trapped in the unseen current of manila so mm. in in that sense yeah i can i can see that there is a thematic that it shares a thematic bone with giallo uh, is manila giallo in my opinion no no because manila makes too much damn sense and the end result is is way too understandable and logical for it to be a giallo but yeah i, I can see that um a, a lot of the elements that i brought up are kind of universal to to films despite the genre you, you can you can find those elements and those themes in in films from varying varying genres. So yeah. can't just say that it's just you know this giallo influence. But giallo can be one of those genres, and in that way, yeah, I can kind of I agree that there is a spirit or there is a part of an essence of giallo in Manila. If you want to look at that that way. Agreed. Reeling back again a bit to the discussion about male prostitution. Uh, Brock, the director, was openly gay. You mentioned that it wasn't like consensual in a way. You said that the character Julia didn't definitely enjoy those moments. And... At the same breath, I would say that uh, it's not depicted in such of a disgusting moment for the character as it could have been. No, most definitely no. Uh, the homosexual intercourse that happens is actually, well, I can't say pleasant. No. But. It is, it is at least on some level sympathetic and understanding. That yeah. the client that Julio, Julio has is, is not directly abusive. Um, he's not a beater. He, he, he even kind of, you know, guides Julio through his, his first time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's not really... It, it, it's not as ugly and, and disgusting as it could have been, uh, can an argument be thrown that Julio might even have enjoyed his moment? Perhaps even so. 
Well, I've seen this one version, the modern version, at least, of the poster of the film. At first, when I didn't know exactly what the film is about, I was just looking at it and, oh, okay, it's some consensual moment with our lady friend. But it seems to be from from those those homosexual moments of the film, or those prostitution moments. And if you look at the expression on Julio's face there, he might be even enjoying it a little bit. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm drawing my conclusion that, that Julio didn't enjoy it. No. Or I'm basing it, basing my conclusion that Julio didn't enjoy it and mm, found it perhaps even a bit disgusting for himself. Basically solely on the fact that after that first intercourse, Julio runs away from, from the life of prostitution. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean necessarily that, that Julio now despises homosexuality or he wouldn't have a so homosexual side in him. Could simply be also that, you know, Julio despises prostitution as a profession for himself. Mm. But Julio leaves basically the job that is guaranteeing him a relative amount of money. Mm. The only job he has at that point and moves back into the streets, just so that he wouldn't have to be a male prostitute anymore. So I, I took that kind of a, as a way of Julio condemning his, his new profession. And now I also kind of, and this is, once again, this is 100% me reading things into Julio and into film, but I took it as a way that Julio perhaps, there's a possibility that he saw what he had to do as, as something disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of found it interesting. Couldn't really crack the code why why the choice in the poster, why the, the prostitution scenes were made in the way that they were made. But yeah, then reading about also the kind of homosexual side of the director might be an influence on showing yeah, like a reasonable presentation of the circumstances from the industry side anyway and uh, yeah yeah but but speaking of I am, I, yeah. I, I am stating on my my ground however on the notion that it was not consensual because Julio no. was in dire need of money yeah that is uh, that that is forced on you by capitalism yeah not the client not the client necessarily he's just mm. someone who takes advantage of the situation but the situation forces you into it yeah so there's a lot of dream crushing here this is something that was quite painful to see is the what is also my kind of how i see the the, the filipino spirit can generally positive attitude here regardless of which kind of a wealth representation or what kind of a background you're coming from but then even if you're in the lower class you of course have dreams and you have aspirations like here you have the worker called Benny he wants to break through to become a singer but then what Klaus does to the character is or characters rather it this film punishes everyone who dares to dream and the director is known for this rather bleak portrayals in his films you can't you can't take an injured injured person to a hospital no one can afford to pay for it facts 
even if you have a mild injury in this country, it could be a death sentence if you don't have like a medical insurance. Sure, there is the the public side of hospitals, but yeah, haven't tried that. Some people have actually said quite positive things about it as well. So, but anyway, uh, no funerals if you're in this situation. Could be, can afford, but it can be sent to be cut into pieces at some kind of university for studying purposes. We already mentioned land grabbing, which it could have been. And there's a crippled man or handicapped man, whatever is the socially acceptable way of describing these people now in English. He burns alive in the fire, then losing the only personally important item you have to a, to a scamming son of a bitch. So it's all there, that bleakness and uh, a, a literal dead end at the end. Then again, it's not a situation that applies to everyone in, in the film. Uh, in the construction site, Julio does have have that one friend who is studying alongside with with his workings uh, with, with his work and actually manages to I take it to graduate at the very end and lands a well-paying job from some advertising ad agency and not not to say that it's a, it's a great ending for that character because it kind of works in detriment of of the character seeing how in the advertising agency he now gets the the pay monthly paycheck of 250 pesos which in here means practically monetary salvation for yourself you are mm. carefree and everything is open to you and as a result you kind of turn into a raging asshole mm. So, once again, a semi-bleak ending, but not completely night, dark as night bleak, I would say. One character manages to, to save himself from the poverty by, you know, working twice as hard and studying along, alongside of it all. And then, of course, yeah, turns into a raging asshole. <laughs> yeah, and the dead end at the end... Of course, it it's left slightly open what will happen, but to me, looks like the looks like Julio is gonna kill himself, but slightly up for interpretation or just cutting the nasty parts out. Yeah, well, well, something will kill himself, or, or something will kill him. In in that situation, I would shank myself rather than face the mob. But yeah, you know, who knows. Do you want to jump to the quickies? Yeah, why not? The performance pedestal, so to speak. Who would you rate as the, the, the biggest uh, impression of, of acting in this film? I would just go with the leading star. Bembo Rocco is my pick here. Yeah, I, I take the same, same character or same man plays, plays Julio here. Yeah. Notable for the fact that hmm. I understood that he was in rehab when when the director found him. Oh, was he? And he was like a no-name. Uh, and yeah, actually, yeah. yeah, there was uh, another person, director Bracca's frequent collaborator, Jay Ilagan. He was supposed to do the role of Julio, and they shot with him for several days already. 
but then Brock gave him the boot. Uh, he was not satisfied, maybe not so much with the performance, but he was less satisfied with how he looked in the role. It didn't look right. He looked too kind of clean or or problem-free from the outside, so he had to change the actor to kind of get the right vibe for his movie, so he said. What worked, Henrik, for you in this film? Or should I go first? Why don't you go first? I'll go first. The, the What I mentioned, the episodic nature actually worked for me. We see the hardship, and then the film keeps teasing us about Lee Gaia with the flashbacks, and actually does work in terms of momentum and engagement. You know, just enough. Okay, uh, for me... Well, I, I did like the overall discussion that the film has about poverty. Yeah. And and basically the power that currency can have over you. Uh, could have that points been perhaps even, even deeper discussion? Uh, perhaps. But I did enjoy what I have. I also liked the overall tone of the movie. The cinematography, once again. <laughs> Yeah, cinematography, I also kind of like the feeling of the film. It's it's not exactly black and white Humphrey Bogart film noir, but it kind of feels an awful lot like a black and white Humphrey Bogart film noir. Yeah, the film Injang, which is where Hilda Cornell, who plays Ligaya here, she was in the main role, role there. Injang got some reviews or criticism that that perhaps what it tried to tell was just not enough that it was kind of portraying the harrowing situation but it just didn't have enough narrative to go with it but then again Injang on the other hand is also has had the raving reviews and is one of the apparently one of the most lauded best movies to come out out of the Philippines so yeah I haven't seen that film but the, the point is that it seems that the reviewers kind of argue that in close it fall, falls better into place. The, the setting, the, the murkiness and the storytelling is also there to tie it all up. But but yeah, absolutely dig the vibe of the film. What, what didn't work? Well, for me, it's more like nitpicking, but there was this... I forgot the name, but the performance of the lady whose house burst, burns down there. That was maybe the weakest point, performance-wise. A weakest point of the film, perhaps. But it's alright. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of too minds about would the film or would the film have benefited from uh, having having even more twisty and turny plot narrative? Perhaps it, it could have serviced the the mystery film noir aspects of the movie. I'm also kind of two ways about the whole question. Should the film have kept more questions to itself and provide the audiences with even less answers? There are moments when the film kind of, like I said, left me hanging. And well, there were moments when... 
I, I, I was at risk of kind of a lo- losing the film, or the film was in ris- risk of losing me and my attention. It didn't happen, but the risk was there a couple of times. Mm. Yeah, D- describe the film in one word. I'll go with gloomy. I go with paranoid. Yeah. Uh, skipping the shit questions. Complete the sentence. You really know you're watching uh, Manila in the close of light. When? When you spend like three months and 16 paychecks just to stalk a dirty hovel so that you can stare away shank a Chinese man. <laughs> right on. You really know you're watching Manila in the close of light when you figure out midway that the film is really neither about close or light. More like Manila in the... No, in, in the hand job of the dark room. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But, but there is some light to be found at the end of the tunnel. There's the, a... see, that, that was just, just the neon signs, they don't count. And there, there was the fade to, fade to light. <laughs> How is the industry term for that at the end? And, and there is some it's, light also. It was just a saturation mistake. <laughs> and there is some light to be found also in what Atong says. He proposes the question. Imagine 250 pesos will we ever see such money? And the answer is, I can confirm, yes, at least in 2023. The, the on, only real light, light which, which would be a light that uh, covers the, the, uh, both the, the, the physical meaning of the word and also the emotional meaning of the word, in my opinion, can be only be found in, in some of those flashbacks which mm. shows Julio with Ligania. And none of those actually happens in Manila. Uh, yeah. The film's own title is misleading. Movie is garbage. <laughs> yeah, those are supposed to take place at Marin Duque. I believe I'm... Okay. Part. Yeah, that's, a, that's not I, I island. I have no idea where that's, <laughs> that was supposed to be. That's just a, a fishing island somewhere. Yeah. Did you like the film? Did I like the film? Uh, yes, I quite enjoyed the film. I, I did also. I did also. Um, I do, do think it's it's pretty strong movie. Uh, not me not being that well versed with Filipino cinema. It most definitely is a strong opener for Philippines in, in the cinematic landscape. One thing that intrigued, intrigued me uh, regarding your workload preparing for this episode. Exactly how much of a workload was it to prepare for a movie from a director that you've never heard of, from a country that you may not know too much about in in your parts of the world, our parts of the world, Uh, possibly reading about the political situation in the country in the 1980s, Marcos and uh, uh, all of that. Was it heavy? it, it was heavy, most definitely, but it was surprisingly light because it turned out to be extremely tricky to actually find anything. Yeah. About any, any of this outside of per, perhaps the, the historical and or, or the political history of Philippines. And it's like the more, like when it comes to things 
surrounding today's movie, that is the only thing that is at least in some capacity being talked about and written about. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, would I ever rewatch the film? Yeah, I have no problem with that. And that kind of goes hand in hand with the answer to the question, would I recommend the film? Yes, I would. Uh, a film that I would recommend for kind of everyone to watch to gain awareness of the the kind of a plight in the Philippines. That despite some advances, there is still that that plight. Those situations that I mentioned there in terms of dream crushing, it still exists today. And uh, I don't know. I I hope one day. And and the situation is improving every day. The, the GDP in, in in the country is raising every day tremendously. So we are on a good path, I suppose. Yeah. Can't actually touch upon that final good path point, but but get into the previous points. Uh, would I rewatch Manila Alas uh, again? Yeah. Not immediately, but I will be rewatching the film at some point. It kind of leads into my my second big gripe surrounding this film, which is that I kind of wish that I would have actually heard about the movie sooner and would have already seen it at some point of my life. That basically works as a clever segue. It's a whole point that I actually feel hope that I would hear more about Filipino cinema altogether. Oh yeah. I was kind of like, I, I mentioned that the background work for today's episode was surprisingly light because it was surprisingly hard to actually find anything. And I think that that is a crying shame. God damn it, Philippines. I went to bloody YouTube and tried to find some type of a documentary opening the cinematic history of, of Filipino cinema. Couldn't find pretty much anything. Found pretty much nothing. Neat. Just a handful of handful of YouTube videos which came from varied sources with various degrees of success and skill. Like, I hate to really be too critical of people who provide video content on YouTube on their own free time for their pa simply as a work of passion. But as a dude who has been co-hosting the Flick Lab for years as a as an act of passion, you know, a lot of those videos are worse than our podcast episodes. Oh so my. the situation is dire, people. Oh God my. damn. And it pisses me, pissed me off that that was like the only videos that I could find in YouTube. And if you try to find something in paper on in Google, well, good luck with that because your best source was those videos on YouTube. So yeah. Philippines don't talk about their own video la uh, film landscape, at least not in the capacity that they should be talking about it outside of, well, at least outside of bloody Philippines. I don't know if the situation is way better with you there on the hot zone, but me being stuck in here in goddamn Finland, it's nigh impossible to actually hear about this. 
let alone to actually find the actual films, let alone to be able to see them, let alone to actually know what's going on with the Filipino landscape at the moment, and then finding, you know, that much information about the directors, the production processes, pretty much anything except, you know, the, the political history of Philippines, the most researched topic and written about topic that you can find in Finland concerning Philippines. And that's I honestly feel like that's like Manila is a really good film. Yeah. People should know about this shit. And I I refuse to believe that that in in the history of their filmmaking Philippines have been able to produce only one good film. <laughs> I'm certain that there's a lot of good movies and then I find out that you jackasses, you bloody jackasses in Philippines, you have <laughs> lost, irredeemably lost, hundreds, if not thousands of films. Yeah. Because you haven't archived them. Because you have let the film reels out there to the elements. Yeah. And because you haven't digitalized them. And I'm kind of like, for fuck's sake, People, seriously, this is like important stuff. This is part of your cultural heresy. You, you like heritage. Your, your <laughs> heritage, yeah. This is part of your cultural heritage. What you're doing to it is heresy. Yeah. So bloody hell, like, and I, I do think that I, I don't think that the, the situation is unsalvageable. To, to kind no. of hargate it. Back, you know, when I was quoting the, the director, like, I think that the situation can be saved, but the drastic measures has to be taken. My... I implore to, to, you know, Philippines Film Council to actually start a pushback yeah. on, on the, the road that is, they are currently taking and the, and the way how the situation is currently evolving on its own. I'm glad that I've kind of salvaged perhaps the Filipino cinema in your eyes after we did the Kathniel episode. What you said, I think it's absolutely true. I agree with you 120%. The films have been, in many cases, it seems to have been, they have been left to the elements, like you said, they are in dire con condition. What my reading is, is that there is not so much appreciation towards these films locally. And like we have said, yeah, people go watch watch movies, but they are more of the Marvel type of movies or kind of the casual kind of watching. And then the the, the local film industry has been left somewhere on the on the wayside. And even the people who go watch these things, I'm not so sure that they appreciate them very much. And there's so many films that seem like absolute gems from the 1970s, from the 1980s, perhaps from the 1950s when the industry was running high. There's so many titles that I would like to now see that have come up during this, this research in the Filipino cinema. One is Item or Itim, Kisap Mata, horror films from the 80s, Woman on a Tin Roof. There is all those Lav Diaz films, which I still haven't checked out. Not sure if I will check out his 10-hour film or what was it, but all that. Macho Dancer, Batch 81, Jaguar, Bona, This Is My Country, uh, an extremely critical film of the Marcos there. And by the way, the disclaimer, I'm not taking any sides here. 
especially since I'm living here. I'm completely apolitical at the moment. Uh, and uh, if you're interested, I can start looking up some of the local cinema here and uh, try to send you some, some copies if possible. Well, I, I think that somebody has to start up looking at the local cinema or the Filipino cinema since Philippines themselves refuse to do the bloody work. Like, I, I understand that the situation in Philippines and in the cultural landscape can be tough. And I understand that, you know, you know, the, the Hollywood cinema can be tempting and all the, all the marvelous stuff can be intriguing. But like I said in, in the, or I at least tried to say at the start of today's episodes, I don't think that the situation is lost. I don't think that Filipinos as a cinema going audience, like I understand that at the moment they don't appreciate the, the, the heavy Filipino cinema, that they, they elevated towards Kathniels and, and whatever the Hollywood happens to be producing this week. I understand that that may be the situation now. It may be the situation tomorrow and, and the next week and perhaps even the next year, but I don't think that the situation is lost. I think that if the government would find... Well, mostly I think that what it should find is is the passion and the will to actually start to tackle the problem and change things. And if it could find that, if I, I do think that, you know, Philippines and Filipinos, once again, could refine the value in their own cinema. And with that way, we could find land in a, in a situation where, where we're in Philippines already, like, Philippine movies that Filipino movies that wouldn't just be you know comedy drama and and romantic movies they could be financially successful and once they are successful in Philippines then you know you can easily push your cinematic la landscape out there to the, the global markets and also be successful there and I do think that that is a goal that is still very much achievable. Like Eric, Eric Matti said that that the situation has to be salvaged, it has to be saved, and government has to find some way. And I'm I'm same I'm with, same minds with Matti here. Most definitely, yeah, that should be done. And I do think that that could be done. The government just has to a really want to do that, and then figure out how to do it. And if how to do it is too complicated. But then in that case, if nothing else, you know, contact us on our Facebook page. <laughs> if all and then support else our <laughs> Yeah, if everything else fails, you know, contact us and then support our Patreon. Thank you very much. Yeah, I would love to leave it there, but I'm not. Because, you know, there's something that Brocka said, that an artist is first a citizen, first and foremost. In 1983, he created CAP, Concerned Artists of the Philippines, uh, which became active in anti-government rallies after the assassination of a certain uh, politician, Benigno Aquino Jr. So Broca and his colleagues were arrested for joining one of the protests he did not organize, according to his own words. And after he was finally acquitted, he joined the Coalition for the Restoration of Democracy, 
He was yet again arrested in 1985 and this time charged along with two others for uh, illegal assembly and inciting to sedition. That was then overturned after Marcus was ousted. Yeah, that is to give you some kind of background just what Broca has been going through. And in 1990, uh, his cinematographer, Petro Manding Jr., he was found stabbed to death in a canal in Quezon City, just uh, which is part of the greater Manila area. So it may be kind of incredibly, actually really empowering realization for an artist of, of any size, any medium, to be a citizen first and then the artist second. Because if you imagine uh, like how much it might enrich and purify you as an artistic speaker, because if you are an, a citizen first, then that material that is likely to come from your own thoughts, from your own heart, and it reflects more the, the plight uh, or experiences of the normal people, so to speak. So then I would draw the conclusion that even more so now, there's this saying that goes along the lines that, that artists should hide their political identity. They shouldn't speak out on political issues. But if they do that, then there's no citizen identity. And that might affect art. Yeah. And if you start affecting art, then, you know, art... Did you break this down in, in money? What art produces is not just the actual product, the film, and the time products of that film, which is domestic work, like advertisement, and also related products, like for example soundtrack albums. On top of all of that, what art pro pro produces is IP rights. And if you don't actually champion and support the art, what you're doing, you're actually letting the IP rights slowly fade away. Mm. And then once you do that enough and long enough, it actually starts to hurt the across the domestic product. So in that sense, you know, it's even economically wise to actually support the bloody art field. Yeah. Don't become a prostitute. Or if you're doing the business, then keep it at the minimum. Yeah, and if you if you end up becoming a prostitute, you can all, you know, please do remember A, you're not worthless, B, you can still, you know, reach some hopes, and C, that's not the worst thing that you can still be, still do. I mean, you could be a film podcaster. You could also be doing Marvel movies and still be prostituting. So <laughs> that's the context from my... <laughs> yeah. But hey, that's a wonderful point to start closing. Unless, to go to my brother, you got something to say? Man. <laughs> All right. What did you think, dear listener? Was this episode informative? Next coming of Jesus or a stinking pile of landfill? Tell us all about it on You Know Where, Facebook and all those other social medias that are very popular here also in the Philippines. And if you thought that this content was really valuable, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts, or if you really love us, you can really contribute on our Patreon page, as Henrik already suggested there. Notch, notch. 
And if you are Philippines, Filipino government, you know, just contact us. Christ damn. I, I usually am against the, the white savior narratives. But <laughs> guys, guys, you, you, you need it. You just need it. Just need it. I'm gonna make an exception here, you know. <laughs> anyway, in the next episode, we have quite a bit of ideas, but I can't give you anything concrete at this point. So, thank you for joining us. Consummatum est. Until next time.